Well, church, we've got something uh, interesting today. We, we've got uh, uh, the genealogy that begins the New Testament, that begins Matthew. And, and on the one hand, you would, you would take that genealogy and the one in Luke 3, and, and you could say, you know, that, that might be the most boring passage in the New Testament. But we're going to see that it is precious. It is beautiful. And we're going to look at it together. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read about half of it. Would you stand with me, please, in honor of God's Word? Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Skipping down to verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the de deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's holy word, church. Please be seated. <clears throat> Two immediate questions about the genealogy. One, why does Matthew, alone among the four gospel writers, begin his gospel with a genealogy, with a long list of names? Luke includes one, but it's, it's farther in. Why does Matthew alone begin with a genealogy? That's a question that alone only takes us a couple of minutes. The rest of the time is the second question. Jewish society was very patriarchal at the time. They never included men in the genealogies. I mean, never included women in the genealogies, just men. So why does Matthew include five women in his genealogy? It'll be very telling what God is saying about that. Okay, first question, why does he begin with a genealogy? Why does he include it? Well, I, I think there's no doubt that he is just establishing the historicity of Jesus Christ and the whole story. He does not begin his gospel something like this, once upon a time in a faraway land, deep in a dark forest. You know, it doesn't begin. It's not a fairy tale. This is gospel, which is a bridge of history and the truths of God in theology. And genealogies in the Old Testament are particularly important to establish, okay, this is who this person is. That is his son and his son. And for Jesus, it's all the way back to Abraham, the first Jew. Fascinating story by a missionary who, who, who told this story. She goes to a remote tribe that didn't have a written language. So she's got to learn the language. 
Then she's got to uh, have a, invent a written form for it, to have a writing form, and then teach them how to read, then translate the New Testament. Big job. So she begins that arduous work of translating and learning the languages. And finally, she's at the place where she can put out some of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, she wants to get it out as quickly as possible, so she doesn't translate the whole Gospel of Matthew, but just an abridged form of Matthew. It's part of it. And the day came that uh, finally those first copies of the first parts of the New Testament were there, and, and, and she's so excited. They're distributed to folks. She's particularly interested in the reaction of the chief. He gets one. He, he's learned how to read. He goes into his place, and, and he, he's reading this New Testament, and she's waiting for his response, and not one word. No reaction. And uh, she just, well, puts her head down and goes on to keep translating, and she translates all of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, that first abridged form did not have the genealogy, but now she has translated the entire Gospel of Matthew, and so again, she's excited. The truck comes, copies of the New Testament, or at least the Gospel of Matthew are passed out. Uh, she's particularly concerned with what the chief is going to, how he's going to respond, and she's back in her missionary compound in her hut later that night, and all of a sudden, the chief bursts into the compound, into her hut, and says, you mean to tell me this is all real? And she was astonished to find out that they thought this was fairy tale stuff, and not until he began reading the genealogy, oh, it hits him, this is a real thing in history. And no doubt, part of what Matthew is doing is underscoring, this is not fairy tale. This is history. This is real stuff. Okay, that's the easy question. The second question is the more interesting question, and that is this. Why include these women? Now, Jesus in his lifetime would shatter all kinds of gender-type barriers. He had women disciples. He had women with him. The first uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. They were not even allowed to be in a court of law. I mean, a very patriarchal society. Jesus smashed stereotypes. But this is Matthew writing years later, decades later, inspired by the Spirit, and he includes not one, not two, but five women in the genealogy. Wasn't done. Why is that? Well, one of the women, that's an easy one, because one of the women I read at the last uh, couple of verses, that's Mary. That's the mother of Jesus, no big deal. Of course, he would include Mary. But what about those other four women? God is saying something very specific and emphatic to the readers, the first readers of Matthew, and to all of us this morning. And we'll see what that is. In verse 2, we begin the genealogy with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, by the way. Everybody knows just making sure you know, the first Jew was Abraham. That's, why, that's where God started the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 brothers, you know, Judah and the brothers, and then from there. All righty, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, there's the first one. Now, this letter... This uh, book of Matthew was written to Jewish Christians. Luke was written more to Gentiles. Jews, you know, those who are in the lineage of Abraham. Gentiles, everybody else. You know, just about all of us are Gentiles. Now, the, the Jewish Christians, those were Jews largely in Israel who came to faith in Christ. And decades later, they would get this gospel. 
they would know the stories in the Old Testament. They would know about Tamar. And this is what happened with Tamar. Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38. This is what happens. Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the 12 brothers, sons of Isaac, uh, sons of Jacob. Judah has three sons. The oldest son marries Tamar. And he is wicked, and God takes him home, or takes him, he dies early, wherever he goes. In that day, a wife whose husband died early did not have Social Security or government support, and so she would be very vulnerable. She had to beg or something, and so this is what happened. The next oldest brother would marry her and add her to his marriage and provide for her. So the second son of Judah marries Tamar. He is also wicked, and he is taken home. He dies early also. So both of those guys. Alrighty, there's a third son. He's not old enough to marry. And Jacob is, and, and jo- Judah is thinking to himself, there is no way that I'm giving my third son to that woman. She's bad news. You know, somehow my sons die early with her. And um, yeah. So, now in that day, that's not done. So he tells Tamar, okay, you'll get Shealtiel when he grows up. But he has no intention of giving him Shealtiel. Shealtiel grows up, he gets marriageable age, and sure enough, Judah does not give a husband to Tamar. So Tamar uh, waits and waits, and after some time, she says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. This is what she does. She disguises herself like a prostitute on a road that Judah would be traveling down. Judah uh, comes down this road, sees this woman disguised as a prostitute, makes a proposal with her, and sleeps with her. He doesn't have the money to pay her there, but he gives her his staff with his special insignia to identify him. That's him. You get this to me later, and and, and we'll, we'll pay up. So Tamar gets pregnant, and Judah is told, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. No marriage. And he thinks, oh, yes, I can get rid of her now. We can stone her to death. And she, before she's stoned to death, takes that staff has it sent to Judah and says, I am pregnant by the man who owns this staff. In other words, you're the man. And, of course, he is exposed. He feels guilt. He does not have her killed. He knows. He says, in fact, you're more righteous than I am. And she lives. Two babies are born. Two twins are born. And one of them becomes in the line of the Messiah when he comes to this planet. Now, think about this. When Jesus Christ comes to this planet... In his ancestral line are not perfect people, perfect man families, and perfect marriages, but very flawed people, including the child of incest, of a father-in-law having sex with his daughter-in-law and, and, and those kids, one of them being in the royal line. You know, it'd be a little bit like this. I don't uh, claim to be a, a great uh, fan of Star Wars like many of you are, but I know a little bit about Star Wars, and I know that... Luke Skywalker was a totally good character, and the day he found out when his dad, Darth Vader, came, came to him and said, I am your father. I mean, whoa. I mean, here's this good person, and this, this epitome of evil was his father. You know, it's something like that, that through the line, the ancestry of, of Jesus is this child of incest. Now, here's the thing. God does not need to include Tamar in there. The alert Jewish reader would figure that out real easily. 
But God points it out and underscores it. He had the son by Tamar. And the Jewish reader would recall all of Genesis 38 and say, oh yeah. What is God doing for the Jewish readers of Matthew and for you and me today? God is saying, you need to understand something about me. I don't just deal with perfect people. I don't just deal with sinless people. I deal with real people. I deal with flawed people. I deal with sinners. I deal with people like Judah and like Tamar and like you and like me. Because we are people who need the grace of God. We don't earn our acceptance with God. Unlike every religion on the planet, much of of the Christian church today around the world, uh, what the Bible teaches is that we only get into heaven by grace. And that God is a God of grace. And God is a God of mercy. We don't get in because we're good or because we're clever, because we figure things out. We get in by grace. Just like Tamar's boy. And when God starts the gospel of Matthew, leading up to Christmas, leading up to Easter and and the death and resurrection of Jesus, he reminds us God is the God of grace. God is the God who deals with flawed people. God is the Savior of all people throughout the world. That's Tamar. Now, two verses later, we come to the second woman listed. Her name is Rahab. And we see her in about verse 4, 5, and Salmon, 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now, Rahab did not just pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. And her story is told in Joshua chapter 2. The people of Israel had been released from their slavery in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. Now they were entering the land under Joshua. And the first city was Jericho. Now, he sends two spies, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to, to, uh, to check out the land. And they overhear this conversation between two of the Jericho people. And they're saying basically this, oh no, the Israelites are coming to our city and God's hand is upon them. He wiped out the, the Egyptian army, split the Red Sea. He has defeated their enemies and God's going to defeat us. And they take courage that God is preparing the way. Now, Rahab meets the two guys, uh, gives them a place to stay, and she believes in the God of Israel, the true God. And she says to these two spies, when you come, I know you're going to wipe us out and defeat us. Would you remember me and my family, and would you spare us from death? She has faith. In fact, she's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, Rahab, the prostitute, and Sure enough, when they come and wipe out the city, they spare Rahab and her family. Now, the backstory that we don't know until the New Testament, until much later, is that Rahab marries into the line which would become the ancestral line of Jesus, the Messiah. And there's this woman who was a prostitute who would become part of the ancestral line. And she is the second of the four women beside Mary that God includes. And again, God is saying to us, I'm the God of grace. I am the God who takes broken, flawed people and I redeem them whole. I'm the God who takes sinful people and I forgive them and uh, restore them and I use them in my purposes. They are even in the line of the Messiah when he comes. 
And Jesus is underscoring to us, God is underscoring to us the kind of God he is because all of the world thinks he is a God of good boys and bad boys, good girls and bad girls, religion and rules. Not so, nobody gets in on that basis. I am the God of grace and I forgive people who are broken and sinful, just like you and just like me. And God is reminding us so that we would never forget this is the kind of God he is, the God of second chances. The third woman is different than the first two. We've had a pretend prostitute and we've had a prostitute, but the third woman is different. She's a godly woman. Her name is Ruth. We also see her in five and six, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, one generation down, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Ruth is in the royal line, and she is the grandmother of the greatest king in Jewish history, David, King David. She's the grandmother. She has a specially honored role because when Jesus, the Messiah, comes to this planet, he comes as the son of David in the line of King David, the greatest Jewish king ever. So there's Ruth. Now, Ruth is not an, a, a woman who lives as a prostitute or a pretend prostitute. Why is Ruth in the line? Well, this godly woman, there's an entire book in the Old Testament about her. Joshua judges Ruth, the book of four chapters, tells her story. And Ruth, it turns out, was not Jewish. Ruth was from this other land, Moab, and in a time of famine, she returns to uh, Israel. She comes to Israel for the first time with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and uh, she is uh, faithful to Naomi to serve her and faithful to Naomi's God, and God gives her a husband and places her in the line of King David as grandmother. And of course, even more important, in the, in the line of the son of David, Jesus Christ, this foreigner. Now, why is that important? Because by this time, the Jewish people had completely distorted what it meant to be the chosen people of God. They, they did not get anymore that, that God blesses us so we could be a blessing, Genesis 12. They did not get anymore that God has made us to be a light to all the nations of the earth. They, did not, they lost sight of that, and they only focused on themselves. By the way, uh, we as humans tend to only focus on ourselves, and we tend to demonize those who are different including Muslims, including thinking that all of them are Muslim terrorists and, and, and people who vote differently and all kind of other ways. But God was saying to his people, I'm not just the God of the Jews. Yes, they're my chosen people, but I'm the God of all the peoples of the earth, even the Gentiles people, people like you out here. They matter to me. And when Jesus Christ comes, he dies, not just for Jewish people, but for all the peoples of the earth. Turns out, it's not just Ruth. Tamar, was she Jewish? No, she wasn't Jewish because she married into the family, the Jewish family of Jacob and Judah. He, she was Gentile. What about Rahab? Well, Rahab wasn't Jewish. She was in Jericho. And she wasn't part of the people of Israel. So Tamar wasn't Jewish. Uh, who's the second one? Rahab. Yeah, I'm just testing you there. Okay. <laughs> Rahab wasn't Jewish. Uh, Ruth wasn't Jewish. What about the fourth one besides Mary? Mary's Jewish. What about the fourth one? Well, the fourth one, we're not sure. The fourth one is Bathsheba. We don't know if she's Jewish or Gentile, but we do know this. Her husband, Uriah, is Uriah the Hittite. He's not Jewish. Very likely that Bathsheba was not Jewish also. 
Isn't it interesting that when God includes the ancestral line of the Messiah, not one Jewish mom except Mary is named. But four Gentile women are. And God is saying to you and God's saying to me, never forget, I care about all the peoples of the earth, even the people who are different than you and me. I am the God, not just to the Jews. I am the God of the Gentiles. So, three interesting women in the narrative so far. One more that we're going to cover. And that is in verse 6. And it is the most sobering event of all. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, David was a big deal in Israel. There are three great figures in Israel's history. And that would be Abraham, the first Jew. That would be Moses, who led them out of the uh, slavery in Egypt. And that would be David, the greatest king ever. When Jesus Christ comes to the planet, he is called, one of his titles, Son of David. In fact, if you go back to verse 1-1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Jesus identified with David. David was a godly man most of his life. But he failed big time, and no more so than in this incident referred to. It's so, so fascinating what God says about it. He says, and David was the father of Solomon. He doesn't say by Bathsheba, like the first three. He says, by the wife of Uriah. Why? Because he is reminding the readers, David had Uriah killed. David was not chosen because he was so good. David was a sinner. I use sinful people who mess up big time. Because I'm the God of grace and my grace is bigger than man's sin. God is saying that to every one of us this morning. This is what happened with David back in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, Uriah was one of his loyal soldiers off at the battlefront. David sees Bathsheba one day bathing. He, he calls for her, sends her, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He thinks, oh no, what am I going to do? I better get Uriah back here, sleep with his wife so he'll think I'm the father of this child. He brings Uriah back, but Uriah is so dedicated to the king to serve him, he says, I can't really, I cannot uh, possibly go back and sleep with my wife when my fellow soldiers are are suffering in battle. I'm going to sleep right at your doorstep, king. And that's what he does. David is desperate, sends sends him back, has the commanding general put him in an exposed place so he will be killed. David kills Uriah. Murder. After taking advantage and sleeping with his wife, Bathsheba. Now, God didn't have to include that in the record. He didn't have to include David as, you know, part of the whole messianic line of the Messiah. But once he's there, he didn't have to point out and remind us that the next child was born through Bathsheba and certainly didn't have to point out by the wife of Uriah, in other words, the one that David killed. What is God saying to us in this simple genealogy? Is he not so emphatically saying, you've got to understand about me. If you're going to understand me, you've got to understand this. I am the God, the God whose grace is bigger than your sin. Whatever that sin might be, my grace is bigger. And no one gets into heaven by being good enough or religious enough. All of us come in the same way as beggars in need of grace. Beggars in need of grace. David, chief among them. That's important. 
Because all your life you've heard the condemning, accusing voice of Satan that says to you, God's mad at you, or God's upset at you, or God can't really use you. You've messed up too big, too bad. And God can use Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and a few others, but, you know, not people like you. That is the voice of the enemy. And you give glory to Satan if you believe that lie. You inadvertently give glory to Satan by believing that lie. But oh no, you know the gospel, and you know what the Bible says, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for your sin, that his blood is worthy of covering all your sin. And you know that Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm in Christ Jesus. That includes me. No condemnation. You mean, what about all those sins, Jeff? All those thousands and millions of sins that you messed with and still are going to mess up with? Forgiven. Everyone. Everyone. We know the truth of Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And we believe it. And we take God at his word and we live in the light and the joy of his grace. And we say hallelujah for the gospel. Because nobody yearns it. We all receive it as a free gift. And this baby was born so he could grow up to become a man so that he could die on a cross and shed his blood and die in your place and mine. And that's the best news ever. And right at the outset of the gospel, Matthew is hinting at the grace of God, which will become a crescendo theme throughout the rest of the New Testament. Now, one thing about Christmas, uh, we not only are reminded afresh of the grace of God because he was born to die, we're reminded anew of the, fr- the grace of God, the overwhelming forgiveness of God. But also, it is a testy time. It is a difficult time. And we're going to be with families that are difficult at times. I mean, you think your family was dysfunctional? Look at Judah and Tamar here and some of these other families. But nobody's got a perfect family, do, do, do we? And, and, and people are going to cut us off in the parking lots and all kind of things. If God has poured out grace on us, don't you think God wants you to pour out grace on others? The healthiest, most Christ-like people on the planet do two things. They receive grace, they dispense grace. That's how we live our lives. We receive grace, we dispense grace. And who does God want you to dispense grace to this week, this Christmas? Maybe somebody in that family of yours. Maybe that other driver out down the road. Be a person who lives in the grace of God. Stand with me, please. Friend, if you're here in the room and you've never trusted this grace, do so right now. It's not religion. It's not uh, earning anything. It is receiving the grace of God to sinners just like these guys, just like us. Just breathe a prayer. Lord, would you save me from my sin? I now receive Jesus. He'll do it. He'll hear that prayer. Church, communion, we celebrate grace that Jesus died for us. Now, all week... Uh, there's going to be a lot of things vying for your attention. It's going to be a hectic tear at time if you let it be. But we're going to start the week by quieting our hearts before the Lord and rejoicing in the whole point about Christmas, the grace of God in Jesus. And we're going to take the cup 
We're going to take the bread and we're going to remind ourselves, that is how I get in. That's how I get in. Yea, God. Come and worship the newborn king.